Politics, Politics, and Life Sciences Radio, also known as PLS Radio, is a show about the interplay of life sciences and politics. PLS Radio is hosted by Dean L. Finelli, Ph.D., an intellectual property attorney in Washington, D.C., whose practice focuses on issues connected to the life sciences industry. PLS explores cutting-edge topics involving the biotech and pharma ecosystems, political and governmental policy issues affecting the biotech and pharma industries, and much more. PLS guests include scientists, business, medical professionals, media personalities, newsmakers, and political leaders. Politics and Life Sciences Radio is your place for hot topic discussions and real news in the life sciences industry. Now, it's time for Politics and Life Sciences Radio with your host, Dr. Dean L. Finelli. Good afternoon. This is Dean Finelli on Politics and Life Science Radio. Thank you so much for joining us today. I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Catherine Gray this afternoon. Before we get to Dr. Gray, let's kind of summarize what's going on in the world. Uh, COVID's really dominating and a lot of uh, sort of ancillary stories not directly directed to the virus or the vaccines. Uh, Governor Greg Abbott in Texas put a ban on vaccine passports. They've been in the news lately. It looks like New York uh, wants to use what they're calling an Excelsior passport, which would be uh, basically a a vaccine passport to allow people to show that they've been vaccinated to get back to uh, everyday activities. And I think, you know, the intent certainly sounds good, but I think it also raises just a lot of questions of, you know, what about people that can't get vaccinated? How are they going to prove how are they going to get access to these activities? Uh, are we, you know, prejudicing those people that may have medical conditions and aren't able to get vaccinated? And are they then going to be able to be forced to have to provide any evidence of why they can't get vaccinated? So a lot of issues there. Uh, Governor Abbott didn't even want to get into it. So he just blanket banned uh, vaccine passports in Texas for anyone that's receiving state funding. Uh, Governor DeSantis uh, did a similar thing in Florida, banning passports. So we can see these vaccine passports are starting to be very political. And I guess the ideological political lines are starting to be drawn in the sand. But I guess that's how things go these days. Uh, In my opinion, you know, it sounds like a good idea in theory. I think, you know, probably the way it'll work is somewhere in the middle. Uh, You certainly you could imagine using these passports for airlines, maybe even colleges to some extent. Uh, Obviously, you know, for those people that can't get vaccinated, colleges in that regard would have to make some reasonable accommodation for those students. But nonetheless, uh, probably somewhere, some long, some way we'll see these uh, uh, be implemented to some effect. Uh, Researchers are also studying the effects of the vaccine in pregnant women. And they say that women who've been vaccinated, uh, there may be protection to babies too. Now it's uh, an interesting theory. Again, we know most of the uh, most serious cases are in people over 65, people with comorbidities. Uh, However, uh, it's interesting to think about uh, you know, when we think about children, uh, I think a lot of people would have guessed that a respiratory virus 
uh, similar to flu, may affect children as well. I think we've all been really lucky and fortunate that uh, children have been spared. Uh, it looks like about over 3 million children have gotten the virus and several hundred have died, but proportionately, uh, this has been largely uh, has affected people, older people. I think people over the age of 50, if I recall, uh, make up 95% of the deaths. So uh, while that's still horrible news, when you think about over half a million people have died from the virus, uh, I think really we'd be in just a much more horrific situation uh, had this virus, um, you know, had an effect on children similar to flu. So um, it'll be interesting to see how these uh, these additional tests, we're learning more about these vaccines every day, learning more about the virus every day. Johnson & Johnson uh, looks like yesterday they shut down a facility in Colorado because they had about a dozen people or so out of 1,700 had uh, look like a side effect or some adverse reaction. I think it's uh, really important to kind of distinguish what's a an adverse reaction, like a hives or anaphylaxis, versus what are the the common effects that the body's immune system is having. So uh, I haven't heard information on the exact details of that yet, but it looks like uh, about a dozen people after they received the J and J shot yesterday uh, got some dizziness and some nausea, uh, which seem to be uh, associated with um, the known side effects of receiving that vaccine. Although I think the, the center in Colorado made the right decision stopping that because uh, I suppose eight people uh, at one center uh, did start to raise alarm bells. So that's certainly, uh, you know, safety always takes precedence here. Uh, this is Dean Finelli on Politics and Life Science Radio. I'd like to bring in our featured guest today, Dr. Catherine Gray. Uh, Dr. Gray is a MD, PhD of maternal fetal medicine and a specialist in the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at Brigham, Brigham and Women's Hospital in Massachusetts. Dr. Gray, it's a pleasure to have you today. Thanks for having me. So um, first question I'd like to ask you is um, what effect has and what's been the impact of uh, COVID and sort of people's uh, response to getting treatment and, and gynecology? Have you seen uh, women basically uh, foregoing treatment and foregoing their kind of annual visits? Or has things been in your, what you're seeing uh, sort of steady and normal? Well, um, as a maternal fetal medicine specialist, I um, focus on seeing pregnant individuals. And so we, um, pregnant individuals are a very motivated group of people um, and are in general uh, very compliant uh, with their visits. We have shifted to a combined in-person virtual model of care during the pandemic. And so um, pregnant women are coming in for the visits where they need ultrasounds and exams and blood draws, but then they are conducting some of their other visits uh, virtually instead of having to come to the hospital. That makes sense. And I'm sure, you know, pregnant women just must, I remember when my wife was pregnant, uh, you know, I can't imagine, you know, with everything going on, uh, what, how big a risk uh, is coronavirus to pregnant women? Well, um, you know, at first, early in the pandemic, uh, the sort of statements coming out were, you know, pregnant women aren't at any increased risk, but actually that has changed um, as we've gotten more data over the course of the pandemic. And now we know 
that pregnant women are more likely to be hospitalized and um, need extra oxygen and also even die compared to non-pregnant reproductive age women um, that are you know, similar uh, to them, except that they're not pregnant. So um, we do think pregnancy is a risk factor for severe COVID. And now it's listed as you know, one pre-existing condition that can qualify you to get the vaccine now in Massachusetts instead of waiting until everyone is eligible, for example. Are, are babies and the fetus also at, at preborns and the fetus also at risk? Uh, or is it more the, uh, have you seen miscarriages associated so, with COVID? So, you know, people, yeah. So, you know, this is obviously an area of debate, um, but the latest evidence coming out does not suggest an increased risk of miscarriage. So pregnancy loss early. Um, we do uh, think that women with severe COVID have an ad, more adverse pregnancy outcomes. So they're more likely to have preterm deliveries. They're more likely to get high blood pressure in pregnancy. That data is just emerging now. So for fetuses, we worry about mostly the obstetrical complications leading them, the moms to have early delivery, which then leads to uh, complications for the newborn. For um, for brand new babies, you know, they, they are a, uh, group at higher risk. So babies less than two years old are at higher risk than other kids. And so, um, you know, we are, have been, you know, urging women to take precautions and some of the excitement about the vaccine is the increased vulnerability of, of neonates um, to, to the infection. Now, one of the things I recall when, when my wife was pregnant and, you know, things she was concerned about was, um, blood clots. And she, I think, you know, pregnant women, uh, if I'm not mistaken, are higher risk than non-pregnant women for getting blood clots. Um, you know, and we hear a lot about the AstraZeneca vaccine and, and blood clots associated with that. Or do you have concerns uh, or how are you addressing concerns that parents um, may have um, that are expecting with regard to, you know, blood clots and receiving the vaccine? Yeah, so our particular population to date, um, you know, is has just been eligible largely for Pfizer or Moderna or Johnson & Johnson. So there haven't been too many concerns about blood clots raised in response to those vaccines. So right here in our particular practice, we haven't seen those concerns yet. Um, obviously, we'll need to await data, but, you know, if you compare the number of women or adults who have gotten blood clots in response to the AstraZeneca vaccine, pregnancy itself is a much, much higher risk of having a blood clot than getting the vaccine. So I would say that the risk is much smaller, and we don't know that they're synergistic with each other, like the mechanism by which the vaccine may be promoting a slightly increased risk of clot, we don't know that that's necessarily exponentially more in a, in a pregnant patient. Um, that's just data that we don't yet have. So, Yeah, it seems like there's a lot of data that's, you know, we're learning every day more information. Would, in your opinion, if they, and I'm sure this question will come up with AstraZeneca kind of submitting their data and potentially being authorized, you know, in the next month or so, um, notwithstanding all the negative news we've had throughout the rest of the world, uh, would you feel comfortable recommending women that were uh, either pregnant uh, or planning to get pregnant if they were 
offer the AstraZeneca vaccine or would you say, you know, hold off for one of the more uh, the other vaccines that we have more information on? Well, unfortunately, we're still very limited on any data in pregnant women, right? So, you know, we, all of these studies are of small um, scale. So I think as with our counseling with all the vaccines, you know, it's a risk-benefit analysis, and uh, we know that women who get COVID are likely to have more complications. And so, you know, uh, our general words of advice have been get the vaccine that you're first eligible for. And so I think we'll have to see some, you know, pretty, we'll have to see how this data evolves, but um, we'll just, um, and, and see if there's a reason to make particular recommendations for or against one. But I think it's sort of too early to say what, what we should be recommending when that happens. And in the study that you, you put out uh, recently, uh, you talked about uh, COVID vaccine is safe during pregnancy and may protect the, the baby too. Um, obviously, this virus, as I mentioned earlier, it's known to affect older people. Uh, is there would you recommend if vaccines were available to to babies is that something that you know you think even though risks to children are are lower are babies kind of at even a different class than even considering maybe a school age child would you recommend uh newborns get vaccinated if that were approved or authorized yeah, so I think um, the the data for young children is, you know, all of the that data is currently being generated. So there are clinical trials now of COVID-19 vaccines in um, children going all the way down to infants. We haven't seen that data yet, so we're eagerly awaiting it. And I think if, uh, if it, that data suggests um, safety and efficacy in that population, then I think we will be in a position to recommend it, but we're still waiting that data. In the meantime, I think um, this is one of our counseling points for pregnant and lactating women that, you know, since young infants are not currently eligible to get a vaccine, that some immune protection can be conferred by the pregnant woman receiving vaccinations during pregnancy and or while the mom is breastfeeding. And so right now that's the, you know, protective mechanism that exists for the neonate in addition to the adults around the neonate being vaccinated, right? So if the adults don't bring it into the house, then the infant is not going to, you know, get the COVID either. So, um, so those two things are, are, are things that can be done right now. Uh, and, um, and I think that's part of why there was so much excitement around um, this study um, for pregnant and lactating women is they finally felt like there was something they could do to prevent, um, you know, illness in their, in their newborn, which they're often more worried about than their own health. So. Oh, that makes sense. Did you see, and this is, I haven't seen this information anywhere, and I was just curious, did you see an increase in pregnancy due to people uh, being kind of confined to their house, or has it been kind of on average uh, the same amount of, of newborns born? People said that only only individuals who had never had a child would become pregnant during the pandemic when confined to their house. So, um, but um, <laughs> Because all of us, right, with children, myself being one of them as well, um, were overwhelmed by um, the, you know, trying to care for children um, during the pandemic. Um, but in all seriousness, no, we haven't seen a baby boom come out of the, the pandemic. And I think that's a combination of 
the, the lack of uh, ability to take care of children during this time and um, the, the drastic financial consequences that the pandemic has had on um, so many families, um, both from um, you know, people losing their jobs, people dying, um, lack of housing stability, um, and lack of uh, access to food, um, and um, uh, additionally, um, you know, just the general stress and um, you know, the amount of women in particular who have left you know, their jobs during this time. Right, Dr. Gray, thank you so much for providing this information today. It's been really very valuable and I think uh, answered a lot of questions. So I appreciate your time today and thank you for all the work you're doing in this area. It's really important in these studies that you're overseeing. Uh, this is Dean Finale on Politics and Life Science Radio. I want to thank Dr. Catherine Gray uh, from Brigham and Women's Hospital in Massachusetts for joining us today. Uh, a lot going on in the life science community, mostly dominated by COVID and vaccines, but also a lot of important information uh, specific to women and babies that we heard today. So thank you, Dr. Gray, for your time. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Politics and Life Sciences Radio with Dr. Dean L. Finelli. For more information, check us out at facebook.com slash politics and life sciences.